Radioland, Podcastville, and all the ships at sea. My name is Kate Wolf, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, the managing editor of LARB, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So happy to be here, as always. Happy to have you. So who do we have on the show today? Today, we have a very special guest, Naima Keith, who is the deputy director of the California African American Museum. She's putting on a number of new shows this month, and so we're excited to have her tell us about the new exhibits. And she will be talking to Janice Rochelle Littlejohn, who is the women media and culture editor at the Los Angeles Review of Books. Okay, let's listen to that interview. Great. Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. I'm the senior editor of Women, Media, and Culture at Los Angeles Review of Books. Today we have joining us in the studio Naima J. Keith. She is the deputy director of the California African American Museum in Los Angeles and is the recipient of the 2017 David C. Driscoll Prize, recognizing her contributions to the field of African-American art history and advancing the scholarship of contemporary art of the African diaspora. And congratulations. Thank you so and welcome, much. welcome, Naima. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I will get back to the prize momentarily, but mm-hmm. I wanted to start with a discussion of the new exhibitions you've been working on for the spring. We are actually opening five new exhibitions. The museum actually just recently moved to opening up five new exhibitions, which is essentially all of our galleries at one time, every season. So this season, we're opening several exhibitions. One is solo museum exhibition by an artist, Kenyatta Hinkle. She is a Los Angeles and Oakland-based artist. This is her first museum exhibition, so we're really excited to be able to support her early on in her career. What's being featured in Kenyatta's exhibition is a suite of drawings based on African-American women's invisibility. She's noticed that conversation around the murder and the killing and the loss of life of African-American women hasn't necessarily been as discussed in media as maybe some African-American men, so Sandra Bland and others. And so she did a body of work that is focused on that idea around invisibility and just feeling as if African-American women's lives are not as valued as other members of society. And so that's one exhibition. And then in our 5,000-square-foot space, we're doing a show about the L.A. riots, mm. about the L.A. uprising. If you can believe it, it's the 25th anniversary of I the— up- And it. it's been 25 years since the uprising. And so we are doing comprehensive exhibition looking at the uprising, not just the events and the Rodney King trial itself, but really looking at the uprising in a context. So thinking about why did African Americans come to Los Angeles and really looking at the migration of people of color coming to the city— And then looking at the Zoot Suit riots, looking at, you know, housing discrimination that was very prevalent here in the city, then looking at the Watts riots of 1965, and then kind of moving into the militarization of police Mm -hmm. and how in an effort to kind of crack down on the drug epidemic, that the police really did kind of take on more military tactics in the way in which they dealt with communities of color, and then which led to the reaction that many of us saw as a result of the Rodney King beating. It's interesting because I was cleaning up my office recently (laughs) and I found these newspaper articles from the Los Angeles Times and they had done a series, a four-part series. And the first one said, it was headlined, How Los Angeles Reached This Crisis Point Again, 
What are you hoping with this particular exhibition to invoke for people who come? What kind of discussions are you looking to cultivate as an end result of that, as a respect to that? Well, number one, Los Angeles Times continues and did a lot of great reporting from the L.A. riots. I mean, a lot of the images that we're including in the exhibition are directly from the L.A. Times because they were really on the scene from the very beginning, even before the police arrived, actually, shooting, interviewing, capturing a sentiment from the from the trial. So it's really commendable that the paper or the L.A. Times was you know, really an integral part of capturing what was happening minute by minute. Mm-hmm. But what we're hoping is that people put the uprising, and I we're particularly using the word uprising versus riot. Uprising because we want people to know that, again, it wasn't just spontaneous. This tension had been building up for a number of years. Mm-hmm. But we want people to see that it's part of a larger story. Again, it wasn't just about Rodney King, but there were the moments that happening, again, with 60 Foot, and I think that's why the LA Times had kind of phrased it as, again, is because you had the Watts riots in 65 that never quite resolved in terms of the relationship between the police and the community. Mm -hmm. And so we want people to walk away with recognizing that, again, it wasn't just about an isolated incident, but then also, you know, how are we moving forward? What kind of discussions are happening in our current political climate? That's not to say that we're hoping that another riot happens. Of course not. But, you know, have our interactions with police improved? You know, where are discussions now about race relations? So I think we're hoping, again, to kind of provide both Angelinos and non-Angelinos with a sense of a larger kind of historical view of that moment, but then also kind of thinking about ways to move forward. Have things changed? Have things improved? And how can we as a community kind of contribute to a dialogue about our current climate? And then you have Derek Adams yes. Network. Yes. Can you so, talk a little bit about that? Sure. Derek Adams is a New York-based artist who has actually never had a show in Southern California. So this is also his first museum exhibition. He's been showing quite a bit on the East Coast. I got to know Derek a number of years ago, and when presented with the opportunity, we knew that he would be the perfect fit for Cam because his work really does focus on TV and really Hollywood culture and the ways in which African-Americans are portrayed on TV. And we felt as if that subject matter would be particularly resonant here in Los Angeles because of it's the home of, you know, TV and Hollywood culture. His practice really does kind of look at how, again, how African-Americans have been portrayed on TV. You have everything from, you know, Sanford and Son to Oprah to Miss Cleo to, I mean, there's so many different representations but him, we're kind of looking at, are we always being put in the most positive light? What does that mean? And so his renderings, they're mainly collages, if you will. So there's video, there's collages, there's a yoga area where you can kind of sit and meditate. There's an interactive aspect of the exhibition. But overall, again, he's kind of looking at the ways in which communities of color, like I said, have been portrayed on TV. You know, it's interesting that you have two exhibitions that focus on images, the images of Black women, the images of people of color. At a time that we're talking a lot about why our images matter, how do you hope that these kinds of exhibitions then lead to further discussion about why it's important that our stories matter, that our images matter, and that representation does bring about social cohesiveness? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I wish I could say that I had this master grand plan when I put all of these shows together, but it's what artists are talking about right now. And so while I'm always excited to see the synergy that happens when you kind of put together a season. I'm finding that when I'm going to artist studios or that I'm, you know, talking to other artists, that these politics, representations on TV, media, culture are all kind of hot button topics that a number of artists are talking about. And so I'm hoping that people walk away with exactly what you were saying, that this kind of larger understanding that representation matters and that it's important and it's still something that we actively need to be concerned with. 
obviously we've come quite a ways, right? So we have everything from, you know, Blackish to central characters on my favorite show, Criminal Minds and other shows. But again, I think we still have to be vigilant and just kind of keeping the conversation pushing forward and making sure that the diversity uh, voice is being heard. So what we're hoping is that there's a recognition that there's still a long way to go, but that also the conversation is a complex one, right? It's not just about having brown faces on TV, but it's really about showing the diversity of people that exist in everyday life. And then you also have another exhibition that is a selection of works from a permanent collection. Can you talk about that one? Yes. Cam has over 4,000 objects in our permanent collection, both art and history. And so it's really important to me that we have at least one permanent collection show up every season. And the idea is that we show things that maybe haven't gotten as much love, and that could happen for a variety of reasons, right? They need to be conserved or anything else. And so this work is focusing on our works on paper from the permanent collection. And it's curated by Vita Brown. And I want to mention that Derek Adams' show is curated by Mar Hollingsworth, who's another visual arts curator at the museum. And then for Vita, you know, really kind of looking and mining our permanent collection to look for strong works that we have on paper. And we have quite a few. And so we're showing everything from our work from our permanent collection from Picasso, for example, to prominent African-American artists, you know, David Driscoll being one of them, actually. Charles White and others. But again, to kind of highlight that we've been actively collecting since our founding in 1984 through either artist gift or, you know, lender gifts or acquisition themselves. But again, just to kind of highlight that we have a very diverse and robust collection that I think deserves shine and deserves to be seen. Well, since the fall, it it seems like there's been an exciting move or push at CAM because I can remember when I first started seeing the banners around Los Angeles in South LA and I thought, ooh, When did we get those? Because that was something we had never had. And I was fortunate enough to be a part of a tour that you gave where you talked about some of the things that since you came on board last year that you really wanted to affect for the museum and give it a greater connection with the community. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you were looking to do and some of maybe your goals going forward this year? Sure. I... I'm an Angelino. I've been coming to CAM my entire life. My mom is a collector, and she particularly collects emerging African-American artists. And so, you know, art has always been a part of my life. And she's also been quite active at CAM. And so I've seen a number of shows over the years at the California African-American Museum. And so it was truly thrilling. It was really an honor to join the team last year. But CAM has been, I think, a hidden gem, you know, for a number of years. And it's been known only to maybe a smaller subsection of Los Angeles. And so when I joined the team, I was really excited about sharing this gem that I had known about for years that I think much more of the city deserves and needs to know about. But quickly after I came on, the state of California actually gave us a $2 million boost to our budget. And so that allowed me to kind of (laughs) do things that, you know, the museum had not necessarily done in the past, such as street banners and changing up a number of things that we've been able to do at the museum, because obviously, you know, that boost definitely helps. (laughs) But, you know, introducing street banners, you know, radically changing our quarterly brochure, used to be called Museum Notes, now it's called Here and Now, Mm -hmm. because we wanted to kind of give it the sense of urgency that this is happening here and now and that you need to get here to see it, changing over the exhibition schedule, The museum used to change over two or three exhibitions a year, Mm -hmm. but now changing over every four months, all of the galleries. And mainly, one, because we wanted to excite people about coming back multiple times, but also because Exhibition Park is changing. With the Lucas Museum coming, which we're very excited about, the soccer stadium opening in 2018, Mm -hmm. the park is changing, Mm -hmm. and people's thinking about Expo Park is changing. And so it realized that we needed to change, Mm -hmm. and that we needed to be, kind of come out there and kind of shed a skin and say, Mm -hmm. we're here, and you know, we're on the map. And so for me, the goal is to really make 
Cam, one of the most dynamic museums in the city, and for everyone to feel as if they can come, not just the African-American community, but everyone. And also the fact that we're an art, history, and culture museum. I think because of our title, a lot of people just assume that we're a history museum or because we're a state institution, a lot of people just assume that we're a history museum. But we've done amazing and robust art exhibitions for a number of years, and obviously my background is in art. I want to continue that. So I want to make sure there's a balance between art and history, of course. Mm -hmm. But I want people to, when I think of CAM, think of an exciting, energetic, worthwhile place to visit, that there's going to be something I can learn, that African-American history is something that everyone could connect to, not just communities of color, and that it's, I want to surprise people. You know, I know people kind of walk in or think, okay, state museum, African-American state museum, that they think they're going to see a certain type of exhibition. Mm -hmm. And my hope is that, oh my God, I didn't even know about Derek Adams. And oh my goodness, you know, I hadn't thought about, you know, Kenyatta's work or drawing in this particular way, or I hadn't necessarily thought about LA-92 in this context, right? right? As part of this larger history. So what I'm hoping for, you know, over the next year is to kind of reintroduce CAM to people who have been coming for a long time and let people know that changes are happening. But also the, the lifelong Angelinos or even the visitors, that there's a thriving, energetic, and amazing museum in Expo Park, and that they need to come down and visit us. Um, so how does that then feed into what you want to do with exhibitions when you go out and are looking at various artists or different kinds of other historical things? Like, what was the decision making when you were planning this one, for instance, the things that you really want to talk to Ellie about and use to draw people into the museum? Well, as you can imagine, you know, I'm always seeing work and my curators are always out and seeing shows and that kind of thing and always having conversations with artists. And so at first it starts with what seems to be bubbling up, right? What are kind of common topics that are coming up? And so it felt like, again, these two, and as you noted, you know, about representation and representation out in popular media seems to be a kind of hot button issue. Mm -hmm. And not that we're trying to be trendy, but we're trying to be responsive to what seems to be a central focus, you know, on artists' minds. And then also, you know, I want, CAM to be a place that supports emerging artists. I know a lot of museums say that, but we really kind of want to put our money where our mouth is. And mm-hmm. so we've, either with Genevieve Gynard's show last season or with Kenyatta's, these are both their first museum exhibitions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really being a place where we're not only supporting artists kind of further along in their career, but also giving them their first start. So in terms of what we're looking for, it's really just kind of having your ear to the ground, seeing what kind of topics are coming up over and over again, thinking where the museum can make the most meaningful contribution to the artist's career. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, it might take years to kind of arrive at an exhibition with an artist. With historical exhibitions, thinking, again, is there enough material there to really make an exhibition? Sometimes, you know, historical subject is interesting as a documentary or as a TV show, but not necessarily in real time, and real okay. space. And then also thinking about, you know, what are historical issues that haven't been mined to a degree that I think we can do. So even like LA-92, even though you think, okay, this is a topic that maybe comes up, surprisingly, there actually have not been that many museum exhibitions dedicated to 92. So there have Mm. been a lot of writing, stories, books, Mm -hmm, and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. but actual exhibitions, there actually have not been that many. So as we were coming up the 25th anniversary and kind of thinking about how the city is changing, it felt important to kind of revisit a very pivotal moment in LA's history. So it's actually, you know, kind of the start of us kind of looking at really just California in generally. Um, mm-hmm. My history curator, Tyree Boyd-Pates, who is the curator of LA-92, No Justice, mm-hmm. No Peace, LA-92, was originally from Compton. And so we've been talking about doing kind of comprehensive exhibition looking at Compton. Mm-hmm. A lot of people kind of think about it as this kind of hip-hop, you know, locus, NWA, and kind of think of a lot <laughs> right. of other. 
But actually, it started as a farming town. Right. And it was, exactly. it was huge ranch plots. As I understand it, that the Bushes actually owned land in Compton at one time. And so really kind of thinking about the city that we only think about it in one lens, but how do we even get there? Right. Again, we're not necessarily thinking about trendiness, but wanting to, I don't want to say put a spin on, but just provide a context on something that maybe you thought you knew mm-hmm. and that hopefully we can expand it a little bit more. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. And we are back again with Karina Longworth, the creator and host of You Must Remember This, the amazing podcast about old Hollywood. And she is back again to give us another book review. Karina, what will you recommend today? This time I want to recommend a novel called The Red Car by Marcy Dermansky. It's about a woman in a sort of not very happy marriage who finds out that an old mentor of hers has died and left her something. And so she has to travel from New York to San Francisco for the funeral and to claim her inheritance. And she uses this as kind of the catalyst to shake up her life in a way that she needs. What drew you to this book? I actually read it because I used to know Marcy Dermansky, the author, a little bit in New York. And I read her previous novel, Bad Marie, which is about a very bad babysitter. Um, (laughs) And I really enjoyed it. I knew Marcy a little bit like in the sort of film critic community in New York, but I felt like I really kind of got to know her a lot better reading Bad Marie and then again reading The Red Car. She has a really strong, interesting voice. She's really able to make the inner lives of these female characters feel super real and powerful. One of the difficult things about being an editor is sometimes you edit a piece, and I edit the piece on the red car, and afterwards you feel like you don't have to read the book anymore, (laughs) especially if the writer has given much of it away. However, most people have not edited a piece on the red car, <laughs> and so I hope everybody does go out and, and read it. Will yeah. you say again the name of the book and the writer? The Red Car by Marcy Duransky. Thank you, Karina. Thank you. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Naima J. Keith in dialogue with Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. special events tied to any of the exhibitions, any kinds of public discussions that we should be aware of? Yes, we have a pretty robust public programming schedule planned for this spring. So we have Rikinata, for example, she's doing a performance in April. She's actually going to perform in the galleries using, I don't say a soundtrack, but a soundtrack of music that she's been culling for the 1930s, actually, all by women. So there's this whole idea of also Invisible Women, because of just a time period they didn't necessarily get their due musically. And so that's going to happen in April. And then for LA92, we're doing a program called Black Girls Matter, which is focusing on Latasha Harlins, but really kind of looking at, again, just kind of overall how African-American women are portrayed in media and then also how they're treated if something tragic happens to them, right? Are they getting the same media coverage? Is there the same outpouring of support? What does that mean? And then how can we be more effective citizens to make sure that their lives are counted? And then we're also having discussions with the first responders, for example, with LA-92. We're having another discussion about how fame, the first Amy Church, was a Mm -hmm. meeting place. 
And so members of the church are coming to talk about, do we still have those meeting places in Los Angeles now? You know, mm-hmm. fame is still obviously a, yes. a robust, it's still a touchstone, it's still a very important congregation here in Los Angeles. But really kind of thinking about if something like that happened, where would we go now? But then also, again, the power of it in 92. Mm-hmm. And then Derek is actually doing a performance during the opening. So on Wednesday evening, he'll be activating a number of his sculptures. He's bringing in performers, and they'll perform in front of the actual sculptures themselves. They're kind of doing their own impromptu kind of infomercials in front of his sculptures. So he'll be doing a performance. And then we'll be having a discussion about African-American performance art in, I want to say, May. Okay. And then with Paperworks, doing a lot more interactive programs with Paperworks. So working with different kinds of paper, doing Ooh, for adults as well. So not this, just, this yes. is good for my nerd girl yeah. heart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, working with different types of paper and different types of techniques and having working artists come in and kind of walk through the different ways in which artists have manipulated paper in their work. So it's a very robust, everything is on our website. So it sounds like there's a lot of really exciting and cool, because I was just sitting there going, okay, well, where will I be in May? Where will I be in May? <laughs> so I can make sure I get at there. Camp. Yes, <laughs> I will be at camp. I want to also ask you about the prize that you are getting next month and what it means to you at this point in your career. I, from reading, I understand that it is kind of an early to mid-career award, but what does it mean to you to have been selected and getting this award? I cannot tell you the joy and the excitement I felt when I got the call. This might be an embarrassing story to share on the radio, but I actually spoke to the CFO of the High Museum at like seven o'clock in the morning. He had called and I said, okay, well, maybe, you know, this is something. So I called, but I have an 18-month-old daughter. Mm. um, And so she doesn't really care what I'm doing. (laughs) So I'm like, hi, this is Naima. You know, you called. I want to call you back immediately. And he said, I'm calling to announce the prize. And so Ella's, my daughter, is yelling in the background. So I'm excited. But then I'm also like, honey, can you? So it's like this whole, <laughs> but I was like, mommy just won a big prize. And she just looks at me like, I'm hungry. You know, just, <laughs> I don't really, you know, where's my oatmeal, basically, <laughs> is what she said. But seriously, I was thrilled, really. David Driscoll is someone that I have admired and respected, you know, my entire career. The contributions he's made to the scholarship of African-American art history is unparalleled. And so to receive a prize in his honor or in his name is mind-blowing. The inaugural recipient of the prize, Kelly Jones, is a mentor and a friend of mine. I had the pleasure of working with her on Now Dig This, Art in Black Los Angeles, which is a show that debuted at the Hammer Museum in 2011. Mm -hmm. And we worked together for three years on that show, and I learned so much just about curating, about research, about what it means to put in 125% into an exhibition, that it's not just about selecting objects, but it's really about thinking about art history and the contribution that you're making to art history. And so for her to be the inaugural recipient and then for Mark Bradford to be last year's recipient, a fellow Angelino and Mm -hmm. someone who I could count as a friend for a number of years, it's almost indescribable. And then, you know, that the prize is given at the High Museum in Atlanta. I went to Spelman College in Atlanta. And so it really is kind of a homecoming in a lot of ways where Originally, actually, was an econ major. I changed my major to art history midway through college. My mom almost passed out when I told her, even though she's a collector, so you would think that she would embrace <laughs> me changing my major, but I think all she saw was, oh my God, I'm going to be supporting this girl for the rest of my life. <laughs> um, <and> so, <laughs> so even though my mom has been very supportive <laughs> of me in my earlier years, to be able to, A, receive a prize from someone that I deeply respect, B, to receive that prize in Atlanta, where mm-hmm. I went to college, And then to be amongst the colleagues and friends who have received the prize before me is just mind-blowing. And also just, I love the attention that it's bringing to Cam and Mm -hmm. that the good work that we're doing and that there's energy and there's things happening. When I received the prize in April, 
I can't even tell you what I'm going to say, <laughs> but I know that I'm thrilled, really. And it just means a lot to be recognized for your work. And mm-hmm. when you're doing this kind of work, not that you don't know that people are watching, but you just don't necessarily know the impact. You champion artists that you believe in, right? So the Charles Gaines show that I did for the City Museum, is it because I truly believe that Charles, that his earlier work was underknown. And oh. I felt like that was just a travesty. And so when you do shows, you're doing it because you're passionate about them. And to receive a prize is really just the icing on the cake. And so I can't wait to celebrate in April with my family. So what made you move from econ to art history? <laughs> That's curious. <laughs> <laughs> Being When you're raised around something and your parents are advocates of something, of course, you want to run in the, the other direction, right? So you're thinking, if your parents are excited about music, you're like, no, I'm going to be the complete opposite. <laughs> but also, you know, in high school... I was good at math. And so you just kind of thought, okay, you're good at math. And then you just kind of go along a certain path, not realizing that the lessons really that my mom taught me just about art and building a relationship with artists. And my mom, like I said, doesn't just collect work, but she maintains relationships with artists. So I've been around artists my entire life. And part of the curriculum at Spelman, you're required to take, it's a liberal arts college. Mm-hmm. And so you're required to take an art history course. And I was like, oh, okay, fine, I'll take it. And I'm sure I know a little bit and, mm-hmm. and this shouldn't be that bad. I got bitten by the bug. It was instant. And it's kind of just slowly took over. Not slowly, really, but it was the end of my sophomore year. And I said, you know what? I really do love this. And Mm -hmm. I know it sounds weird because math and art, are they seem opposite. But for me, what I loved about math is that, or I loved about econ, is that there was a right answer, right? Like two plus two is four. That's what it is. But what I love about art is actually the opposite, where there's not a right answer. That you and I could both look at something, or we were just talking about a little bit earlier offline, about... LA 92, right? Mm-hmm. And how we were both here in Los Angeles and we're both kind of thinking about the events that kind of unfolded over those days in terms of the uprising and how we were both thinking about LA in a very different way. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about art is that we can both look at a painting or a sculpture or a drawing and we see very different things and it can induce very different conversations. And I love that, that there's an open-endedness to mm-hmm. it. And I'm always amazed by the ways in which artists look at the world and they process the world. So really, I just see myself as a champion of what they're doing. And I'm trying to facilitate and bring their ideas to life. And so when I realized that there was a career in art, I knew because like I said, my mom would be dragging me to galleries, but I only thought about it as an artist mm-hmm. and that's it. And so when I realized, okay, I, I put two and two together and there was a career and this is what I could do. That's when I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And then it was only kind of following in the footsteps of other mentors. So being able to work with Thelma Golden, for example, was amazing. That's great. Um, she was someone that I'd been following before I you know, started to work with her. And then obviously... Being able to work with her for five years at Student Museum was a huge moment for me. And then I worked at the Hammer, as I mentioned before, and, and working with Annie Philbin, the director at the Hammer Museum, was also... And just being around strong women who were equal champions of art and artists and culture here in Los Angeles had a huge impact on me. I was on a panel recently, and we were talking about art in the time of Trump and what it means for artists and expression and... As we look at what has been happening with journalists and other media people, what do you think the role of art is now or has it changed because the administration has changed? I don't think the role of art has changed. I think it's always and will continue to be there to enlighten, provoke, challenge, make us think about what we're doing and how we're thinking about different things. But I'm not sure if it's too early to really kind of understand as many things as Trump has done um, (laughs) in his short amount of time. It's hard to think about the fact he's only been in office (laughs) since January, right? Mm -hmm. So we're only, we're not even on two months (laughs) 
yet. And, and again, a lot of things have happened. So I'm not saying that there are not artists reacting. But I think in terms of like a really thoughtful review about art in the era of Trump, I think we maybe need a little bit more time to really kind of process because it's like, there's a travel ban. No, there's not a travel ban. No, there's a new travel. As of yesterday, there's another travel ban. And mm-hmm. then there's Obamacare. And then there's not Obamacare. And then there's a new plan debuted yesterday. And so I think that artists, just like everyone else, are trying to process what it means, I think, to produce in this era. But in terms of the power of art, I don't necessarily see that changing. I think art has always had the ability to comfort us mm-hmm. and to provide maybe an answer when you're just kind of what's happening and what does this mean, again, as well as challenge us. But one of the ways in which we've responded, I don't want to say responded, if you will, but trying to maybe provide a point of conversation at CAM is that we started a series called Activism Now. And I found that a lot of museums are actually doing public programs or producing public programs that are looking at the kind of current political climate, again, to maybe give artists a little bit of time to kind of process what's happening. Mm-hmm. But the series was started because I'm sure like many of our listeners are just trying to figure out what does social activism look like today? Mm-hmm. Um, because it comes in so many forms, right? Obviously, President Trump is using Twitter. <laughs> I'm not saying activism, but I'm saying in terms of like an outlet. Right. Um, people are using Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We're going out to women's marches. We're deleting Uber. We're wearing pink hats. We're wearing safety pins. All kinds of different forms of activism. But mm-hmm. what does that mean and what does that look like? And is it really making a difference? And so the series debuted with a lecture by a Atlanta-based rapper. His name is David Banner. He was very popular when I was in college, but he has since over the last couple of years been much more active on social media, just kind of talking about personal responsibility. And he was quoted more recently saying that Trump is the best thing for Black people to could have ever happened, right? right? And of course, a lot of people were mortified and, oh my God, I can't believe you ever said that. And But really what he was getting at, you know, besides the sensational kind of headline, I guess, was really just hoping that the election of Trump wakes people up right. and makes people realize that things are happening mm-hmm. and things are going to happen very quickly and healthcare is going to change very quickly and our access to education and women's rights and all those things are going to change. Wherever you fall in the aisle, things are going to change. Mm-hmm. And I think that he was just saying that if you needed something to wake you up, this is that thing. Yeah. And so then our second speaker was Elaine Brown. She was the chairperson of the uh, Black Panther Party, mm-hmm. but she has now become very active in Oakland. She is still very outspoken about prison reform and urban food deserts. And she has a very active garden happening in Oakland. So she gave a very kind of spirited talk also just about her role in the Black Panther Party, but also what activism could look like today. Mm-hmm. That she understands that we're obviously in a very different climate than where she was in the 70s. But that still doesn't mean that having a plan and having a mission and being very outspoken is something that's going out of fashion. And right. so she's definitely advocating for us to be as active and as vocal as possible. And then on March 23rd, we're going to be welcoming Ron Finley, yes. also known as the Gangster Gardener. Yes, we um, yes. talk to him for LARP. Exactly. <laughs> and so he'll be at the museum. There's articles that come out recently about his growth, yes, but right. also the kind of... Constant like, fight. Con- exactly. <laughs> constant fight with our city, just about land. But the issue around urban food deserts, it's still very prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, again, especially in the Exposition Park area. Mm-hmm. We're just now kind of getting a few restaurants, but it's pretty bleak in several parts of South L.A. So just talking to him about what does food activism look like? So it's not just about political activism, but it's really just about being a gathering place for people to come and hear from activists that Mm -hmm. have been kind of in the fight for a couple of years and what people can do in their own lives moving forward. So everything from voting 
But then also, again, what does activism look like in the era of Trump? Right. right? Because I think a lot of people feel like their efforts are futile because things are happening every single day. So Mm -hmm. it's like I went out to the Women's March and the next day this is happening and then I'm protesting at the airport. So it's, I know it's a little dizzying for Mm -hmm. many of us. And I think that people are maybe looking for maybe an anchor or a gathering place. And I would love for Cam to be that place. Great. Well, I wanted to close out by asking you. Yes. You mentioned that you wanted Cam to be a gathering place. What are some of the things that we can come to or be excited about as the spring opening is arriving, anything particular or special that you're doing around the opening of the exhibitions? Yes. So we actually started branding our openings. They're called Can't Stop, Won't Stop. We really wanted to give them a nod to hip-hop and something that's current and exciting, but also a nod to the fact that we've been open since 1984, that we're a thriving museum that has been showing amazing exhibitions for 30 years and that we're not stopping, that we're here, mm-hmm. and that we're present, and that we're continuing to do the good work of championing artists of color. So our openings are branded Can't Stop, Won't Stop. We have four food trucks that are coming, and one of them is Harold and Bell's, another one is Solistic Vegan, another one is Postcards, another one is CJ's Wings. So we always mm-hmm. try and go with African-American-owned food trucks. We'll also have two women DJs. So Jack Davey and P-Funk are two Mm -hmm. Los Angeles-based DJs that are also women. We had three female DJs last season. And then it'll just be an exciting celebration of the exhibitions, and then there'll be Derek Adams' performance. But really just we thought if we build it as a celebration that if you're not a big art person, a lot of people come to us and say, I've been to a couple of museums, maybe, but I don't really know what I'm looking at. And so there's an intimidation factor. We felt like if we branded it as a celebration, that you'll come because that will kind of pull you in. And then hopefully you'll discover the art. Like we didn't want to make it seem as if you had to know exactly what's on the wall to feel welcome. You <laughs> right. know, we, we wanted something where, you know what, I want to try this out. It sounds like an exciting event. I've heard a lot of things about Cam. I've seen a street banner around Los Angeles and I don't feel intimidated about coming. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to kind of tear down a lot of the barriers that I, mean, I think keep people from coming to museums by positioning it as an, a celebration that anyone could come to and families are welcome. Everyone's welcome. And we're excited about opening our spring season. Fantastic. Naima J. Keith is the deputy director of the California African American Museum. Well, Naima, thank you so much thank for joining so us much. today. And my I'll pleasure. see you at camp. See you at camp. been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor is Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Orellano. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production volunteer is Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful studios. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books.